Good morning, everyone. Uh, well, we're going to be finishing up uh, Galatians this morning uh, in the section we looked at already when Brandon uh, read Galatians 6, 11 through 18. That's the section we're going to be in. And just as just a small reminder, um, Galatians really focuses heavily on the kind of freedom that God has given us through the gospel. And that this is a freedom that is such a great, a great gift. And that gift is ultimately the relationship, the closeness, the, the bond that we've been given with God through Christ. And throughout Galatians, what's been emphasized is ultimately the cross is what encapsulates everything that demonstrates our freedom in the gospel. And how we view the cross, how we view applying the cross, the principles of the cross, ultimately reveals something about our attitude toward God and his grace and all that he's done for us. Um, the cross is the center of everything that we're called to be and become. It is our gateway to the glory of God and the grace of God. And we're going to be seeing, as Paul concludes this letter, emphasizing again principles with the cross. And I really appreciate, John, the songs that you chose, um, as those songs really centered on exactly what we'll be thinking about with the lesson. So what we're going to be doing is looking at how, at the end of the letter, we see gospel-centered values being encouraged in the last part of the letter, especially with Paul's example in contrast to the Judaizing teachers. Um, and real quick, when I say Judaizing teachers, the Galatian Christians were Christians who had no Jewish background, but Jewish Christians had come to them after Paul had already taught them and established them, and they were being taught by these Jewish teachers that in order to really be Christians, they also need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, something that Paul never taught them, something that was not a part of the gospel that he brought to them. And so Paul, in contrast to these teachers, is going to be giving, at the conclusion of the letter, he's finally going to give some motivations that are at work why are these Jewish Christians teaching these things? Why is this so serious? Why is this so anti-Christ and anti-gospel um, to encourage these things of Gentile Christians? So I'm going to read 11 through 18 again. And uh, just one more introductory remark about chapter 6, verse 11, after I read the section. So Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither, neither is circumcision anything nor circumcision, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. So again, Paul, through the entire letter, has more been dealing with the Christians in the Galatian churches and more been dealing with the primary issue, which is 
why are they drawn to this false teaching? You know, why are they drawn to this distorted gospel? The problem isn't primarily the Judaizing teachers. The problem are the Christians. You know, and that's really the world at large. You know, false teaching is going to be out there. But the problem is what draws us to false teaching. That is the main issue. So Paul hasn't really addressed the false teachers themselves through the entire letter, but now at the conclusion, he's going to address, well, what's, what's really going on with why they're teaching these things? Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Verse 11 is a strange statement, but what I understand about what Paul is saying in verse 11 It's as if he's taking the pen of the scribe because usually these letters would be dictated. So Paul would communicate what he wanted written and a scribe or someone would write the letter. But it's like Paul takes the pen and says, look, what I'm about to write, I'm writing it in big letters. Which, as this is being read to a church, you are not going to see the big letters being the listener, right? So it's like the, the person speaking the letter and, and you know, reading it to the church, see with what large letters I'm writing to you, as in, I'm emphasizing this. I don't know if you've ever had somebody probably accidentally text you in all caps, but whenever they text me in all caps, I read it like they're yelling at me. And I think like, why are they yelling at me? So it may be more appropriate in verse 12 and forward especially I think 12 through 14, to read it with a very heavy emphasis. Almost like Paul is slowing down, and I'm going to back up a little bit, but it's as if to say, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So again, it's like Paul saying, pay attention, listen, This is really what's going on. This is the heart of the issue. So we'll start with verses 12 and 13 as Paul gets into what I'm calling the antichrist values that these false teachers have. As in, these are values that are fundamentally and directly opposed to the values that Paul will bring up in verse 14 with himself being an example of those values. So Paul concludes again, four reasons why the Judaizing teachers are really teaching circumcision. Um, In verse 12, the first statement he makes, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. The New Living Translation, I think, is very pointed with this. So the NLT translation says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. It is anti-Christ to desire to look good to others. We're going to see a lot of things through this section that relate back to some of the earlier things Paul had brought up. But remember, just if you want to turn there really quick, chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I still striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Think about Jesus' ministry. 
Was there a group of people who were Jesus' enemies, who, made, who wanted to make sure they looked good to others, especially religiously, morally, that their goal is they wanted to look impressive to others and they refused to let go of this external image if they were to begin following Jesus or be baptized by John's baptism? Wasn't this the main reason Jesus had so much conflict with the Pharisees? Because what they did not want to let go of was their external image. And so there's some nuance to this, right? But I want to bring this up in terms of a nuance. There is a critical difference between being beyond reproach and being blameless and being concerned about what is honorable. There is a very important difference between that good concern and wanting to make sure you look good to others, right? And again, this is at work in the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. But again, was Paul concerned about looking good? Was Jesus concerned about impressing people? Is that what the cross teaches us? Is that what Jesus was concerned about when he was stripped naked, when he was whipped relentlessly and spit on and mocked, and then put on public display for his loved ones to look at? Was Jesus' concern looking good? We need to be very self-aware with this and very proactive to fight against this temptation. I think what we see through scripture and with the Pharisees is these are not caricatures to point out from a distance, but something is being pulled out that is a very natural temptation. I think the Pharisees, the Judaizing teachers, they show us what is natural if we're not being deliberate to walk by the Spirit and sow by the Spirit. And I think we need to think about this with with serving, with, with helping, with doing good as well. Are you willing to serve where it's needed even if you won't look good while doing it? Are you willing to help and, and give and give of your time, give of your energy, even if it means you'll look bad? You know, sometimes, and what I'm about to say may sound judgmental, I don't mean for it to be, but I just, you know, maybe examine this that I think sometimes when we think about, well, that's not my gift or, you know, that's not really what I'm good at. For me, what I've meant in the past is I won't look good doing that and unless I'll look impressive to others while doing it, then I'm not going to do it. And I'll do what I'm practiced enough at so that when I do it, people are like, oh yeah, I don't see any issue with this at all. Like, great job, you know? And afterwards, they're like, wow, you really nailed it. Like, really good. That was really encouraging. Paul Johnson is going to be preaching next Sunday. You know, and Paul's motivation for that isn't he's going to come up here and impress anybody. Not that he's going to look good and be applauded. But he loves God and has been reading God's word very diligently for a long time. And I've been looking forward to that because I think that's going to encourage everybody a lot more than when I teach because Paul doesn't normally teach, it's his first time teaching, and I think it's going to show everybody you don't need to do something and look good while doing it. Not that Paul won't look good. I think Paul's going to be very encouraging. Um, but again, I think sometimes we just have to do what's awkward. We have to do what we're not used to, what we're not practiced at. We've got to be deliberate about this. 
um, or else we just kind of naturally, we, we, we get into a certain zone where we're just used to doing what we're already feeling pretty good doing. In verse 12 again, they desire to compel you to be circumcised. Some translations say only so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And I think this is meant to be for the false teachers, well, in the eyes of the Christians, to see the false teachers in a very sad way. And I think this takes away all the kind of, any admiration, that this just strips them of looking impressive, that this is just humiliating, very sad. If you were a Jew, the Jewish nation was granted special privileges by the Roman government. If you were a Jew, you were exempt from a lot of the other things cultures had to do religiously. The way that Rome generally kept unity with different cultures, different religions, is you could have your religion, but still pledge like a religious honor to Caesar, and you can have both your culture, your religion, and have peace with Rome. The Jews were different. The Jews didn't have to pledge any religious devotion to Caesar, and that's where a lot of problems would come in in the relationship between Rome and the Jewish nation. Special privileges. If you teach circumcision, if you maintain your Jewishness, not persecuted by the Romans or the Roman government. Who instigated the majority of persecution in the first century when the temple was still up and running? It was the Jews. And so not only if you preach circumcision, do you get to keep a lot of Roman privileges and you're exempt from Roman persecution, you're you're still a Jew, but maybe the family that you want to stay in favor with, they're not going to persecute you. The Jewish leadership, they're not going to persecute you. Look back at verse, well, chapter 5, verse 11. And Paul emphasized this again, but 5.11, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So Paul's making the point, preaching Jesus and not circumcision, not trying to make Gentiles Jews, is the reason I'm persecuted by my Jewish brethren, right? And so, again, it's antichrist to avoid the realities of the difficulties that the cross brings, the shame, the exclusion, the loss of favor, even religious favor. And I'll just say this for whatever it may be worth. It may not be worth very much. But I think there's a lot of teachers in the world who are very eloquent. They're very charismatic. They say things in a way that's really impressive. And again, take this for what it's worth but they deny something so fundamental as baptism being necessary for salvation. And I think if God were to say, hey, here's the reason they don't teach that, I think if we thought more about that, we would be a lot less impressed by people in the world who deny things that are sending people to hell. And so when Paul is bringing this up, however these guys may look morally good, charismatic, outwardly impressive, the fact that they're not willing to suffer exclusion for something so fundamental is humiliating that they will not do that. It is not impressive. And I think we would have a very healthy view of false false teachers if, yes, there's some good things that get said, but the fact that they deny something so basic is extremely problematic. And in my experience, that is often the reason as I study with people. For whatever it's worth. Verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. It is antichrist to deny or ignore our sin, our inadequacy, or our weakness. 
This is something that both in 2 Corinthians, as the Corinthians are also struggling with false teachers who are trying to make a good showing of the flesh, this is literally the same points Paul hammers on in 2 Corinthians. Is these guys are trying to look impressive, and what you don't understand in being drawn into that, you don't understand that this is not about looking impressive. The cross is meant to humble us and bring us into the reality of our need. You remember when we studied Galatians chapter 2? No, it was chapter 4, where Paul came to them and he was sick and they received him as they would have received Christ or an angel of God. They would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him. We talked about how we are bonded together through the cross in our mutual brokenness, our mutual need, the reality of our inadequacy. The law did not deal with the reality of how great our need is. The gospel is the only thing that adequately reveals how great that need is and also deals with it, right? And so if, if we don't deal with our sin, if I'm dishonest about my own shortcomings, well then the gospel and the truth and sound doctrine is going to be a lot more difficult to navigate because the truth is for people who are honest about their sin, inadequacy, and weakness. And for Paul, that honesty was not just something that started his salvation, it's something that sustained and catapulted his salvation continuously, right? And so it's not like he was weak and then he became a Christian and then he was strong. It's a process of being more aware of my need, more aware of my weakness, and then glorying in the cross as God always fills my need and weakness. And then the end of verse 13 they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So we get to this point again of seeking validation from others or through others. And chapter 1, verse 10 again, am I trying to please men? Is that what this is really all about? And again, what does it mean for them to boast in your flesh? And this is something I've, I've brought up multiple times. But the amount of people who are here doesn't validate any of us. It doesn't invalidate any of us either. If I study the Bible with people and every single one of them becomes a Christian, and let's say not only do they become a Christian, but they stay faithful, every single one, does that validate me? It doesn't. Not at all. My own faith and the condition of my own faith validates me, and neither does it invalidate a person if they're trying to teach the gospel and nobody's listening, nobody's obeying, nobody's actually showing an interest. Think about Jeremiah. Was he invalidated? Because as a prophet, it just didn't seem like anybody actually listened to Jeremiah in his day, right? So where do we get our, our sense of validation? Paul, again, just again and again, it's in Christ, the work of God, the cross. And that's what we see in Jesus. So if, again, think about the ministry of Jesus. Did Jesus find validation in large crowds? If you read the Gospels, Jesus will actually, when he has his largest number, and that's emphasized, will at that point turn and bring up his most challenging teaching. And in passages like what uh, Brandon let, read at the Lord's table last week in John 6, thousands of people left Jesus for what he was teaching, and then he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to go also? You know, and I think it's, it's a sad statement, but it's an invitation. Like, you can leave if you want. You know, I'm not forcing you to stay here. I'm going to teach what God wants me to teach. This is how it is. Take it or leave it. The disciples stay. So again, 
Jesus did not find validation through his works, the amount of people who were following him. He just did what God called him to do and he taught what God called him to do and he entrusted it all to God. Go to 2 Corinthians. It's right before Galatians, chapter 13. We're going to think about Paul's example through this sermon. But 2 Corinthians 13, as Paul concludes a letter, again, dealing with the Corinthians admiring people who are trying to look impressive. And every implication is that they seem also to be Judaizing teachers. 2 Corinthians 13, after Paul has kind of brought up his example, again, as a contrast to the false teachers, chapter 13, verse 7. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. You know, so Paul has said some things about himself in Corinthians, but it's not to be validated by the Corinthians. It's not to impress them. It's not to impress us. It's because the Corinthians need to see what is this really all about? And it's the same with Galatians, with what we're about to read in verse 14 when Paul again brings up his own example. But you notice in verse 7, Paul's saying like, look, if I look unapproved, but you still do what is right, God be praised. Because I don't care if I look good to you. I don't care what you think about me. I care about you doing the right thing. Critical. Verse 14, let's think more about Paul's example in chapter 6, verse 14. The values of the cross, and especially Paul bringing up his example. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Again, Paul's example demonstrates the values of the cross. Because what is the cross supposed to be? What, what does Galatians show us about that? You know, John 12, 25 through 26, you don't need to turn there. But Jesus, again, so often Paul's bringing us back to basic things Jesus said. Jesus in John 12 said, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, too often I've thought in John 12, 26, you know, where I am, there my servant will be also. And I've thought, heaven, Jesus is in heaven. But what if that means the cross? Because to Paul, the cross was not, again, something Jesus did for a day. It was who Jesus is to him. It was his bridge to eternal life. It redefined his desires, his thoughts, his character, his relationships. The cross became the center of everything that Paul was and was trying to become. What is the cross to us? You know, Galatians has really challenged me that I need to be more centered on the cross. That the cross to me has to become a reality not just with things I say, but with who I am. That's what it was to Paul. And what does it mean to boast in the cross? Turn a couple books over, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 3. We see this with Paul's example in Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, 
Paul is again dealing with Judaizing teachers and bringing up his example in contrast to seemingly false teachers. Uh, in verse 2, you notice, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. So again, you know, keep your eye out for Judaizing teachers who may be trying to look impressive or boast in their Jewishness. Verse 7, what does it mean to boast in the cross? We, we sang this when in the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You notice that there's both loss in view of gain. So in verse 7 and 8, he says, everything is lost for the sake of Christ, but it's in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish, but look at the end of the verse, that I may gain Christ. And then you notice verse 10, as he's suffering with Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings conformed to his death, verse 10, to attain to the resurrection. You know, the cross is the symbol of God's unfathomable love, but is the symbol of loss for the sake of gain. Jesus lost his earthly life, forfeited all of his privileges that we could gain everything within God's grace. And in Philippians 3, Paul is bringing out in his, in his example that that to me is real. Everything that I've had before is lost because of the surpassing value of what I gain in Christ, being even conformed into his suffering. So for the world to be crucified to me, what does that mean? And I think it simply means that we're putting to death the power, the influence, and the appeal of the world. And that would include the world as in of my own flesh, that the power of my own desire, the influence of my own thoughts, the appeal of what draws me, it's not just to not do. It is to actively put to death, even painfully, so that I may gain things by Christ, the power of the cross, the influence of the cross, the appeal of God's grace, that it can't be both, right? A decision has to be made. Either I want what the world is offering or I want what God is offering and the cross is what stands in the middle and a decision, it has to be made. And especially when dealing with sin, we really need to dig deeper into our hearts. And this is where these epistles challenge us and those who are being written to. In 2 Corinthians, Galatians, We've been told to examine ourselves in Galatians earlier in chapter 6 to keep watch over ourselves, to consider our work. We need to think more about the why. Why do we desire what we desire? Why are we drawn to certain things, especially sinful things? You know, we struggle with sin because we want sin and sinful things. And so a struggle with sin is ultimately a struggle with our own desires, it's a struggle with our heart and where we're allowing our hearts to be. So we have to really dig deep 
Why are we desiring the things that we're desiring? Where is that leading us and where does it come from? Where do my desires come from? Are they coming from God? Are they leading me closer to God? Or are they coming from within myself or the world? And is this leading me on a path to destruction and shame and withdrawal? Or is this strengthening my relationship with God? We just have to ask ourselves more honest and heart-probing questions. And what? What's going to be the outcome of this? What are going to be the consequences of these decisions? What does God think about this? What does God feel about this? What is this doing to my relationship with God and my relationship with others? And I think if we think more honestly about those things, we will have more context within ourselves to make more godly, spirit-based decisions and walk by the spirit and so to the spirit rather than the flesh. What does it mean to be crucified to the world? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So a couple books before Galatians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 9 through 13. So this is again kind of thinking about Paul as an example. And again, as I've mentioned already, the Corinthians are drawn to worldly greatness. They're being influenced by the world. They want the power of the world and the world is appealing to them. And that's what Paul deals with here. And I'll back up to verse 8. You know, he's bringing this up in kind of a, a mocking tone when he says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. As in, this is not real. You think you've gotten something. You have gotten nothing. Verse 8 or verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things until now. So what Paul says about himself is he and the other apostles, how have they embraced that the world views them? So again, you look at verse 13. Paul says of himself, we are the scum of the world. And so Paul's view is he's not trying to be impressive to the world, but rather has accepted that in serving God, it is going to hurt my relationship to the world around me. And I think in the context of Galatians, think about Paul and Peter in chapter 2. That when we're making bold, corrective action against sin, other people may respond very negatively to that, right? And I think, again, for the world to not have influence on us, we talked about this this morning. The reality is we're immersed in the world. You go to work, you're surrounded with worldly-minded people. A lot of us have family members who are extremely worldly-minded. You know, and a lot of us, again, we're exposed continuously, saturated with worldliness and sinful things. When Peter did not make corrective statements about what was happening when the Jews came from Jerusalem, from James, not eating with the Gentiles, when Peter was not clear 
Where did his behavior turn? Clear communication is necessary for separation. You know, oftentimes the reason we are pulled into our environment to talk like the people around us, to be profane like the people around us, to be interested in the same things and people are around us is because we don't have the courage to be clear in our communication. That, that's just not something we can tolerate, right? And Paul, what he's emphasizing again is if we just accept it, we're not trying to win favor with the world. The reality is in righteousness, if people don't look at the gospel, we're going to look foolish. We're going to look weak. We're going to look like the scum of the world. We've got to make clear communication to have clear boundaries. The reason why we're so easily influenced in environments where there's social pressure is we're not saying corrective things and it influences us to turn as it did for Peter. In chapter 2, everything changed when Paul opened his mouth and started correcting with his words and teaching what was right. 15 through 18, I'll read this again in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 15 through 18, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Ancestry, ethnicity, and race. What do those things mean in terms of our favor with God? You know, in terms of just our relationships with people, they, they may mean something, and there are realities of that that affect our relationships. But in terms of our, our favor with God, those things mean nothing. You know, it doesn't matter who my ancestor is, whether it be a king or a Jew from the tribe of Judah. You know, none, of that, none of that matters. My ethnicity, my race, not even if my parents are Christians or my, you know, my, my dad is an elder, none, none of those things they don't win me extra favor with God, right? So again, what he's emphasizing in verse 15, as he's emphasized again and again, these external markers of distinction, they don't mean anything. And in fact, God's true Israel is a new creation. So just as a reference, if you'd like to write these down, Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul says clearly, a person is not a Jew outwardly, but they are a Jew if their heart is circumcised. Romans 9, they are not all Israel, though they are Abraham's descendants, but those who are of Israel are those who are born according to the promise. This is something that's emphasized in the New Testament is after Christ rose from the dead, it's people who are born by the Spirit and who walk by the Spirit. In verse 16, when he says the Israel of God, Paul is not talking about physical Israel at that point. He's talking about the Israel, those who are born again, those who are God's adopted children. And this, this means something. False teaching always preys on pride, worldly desire, and a lack of proper spiritual investment. Those three things every time, period. And I say period, but like think about it. You can challenge me on that. But when you read the letters to the churches of the New Testament, any time, any time false teaching is brought up, sensuality is brought up. Pride is brought up. A lack of spiritual investment is brought up. In Second Peter, he'll say, guys, 
You've got to be growing diligently in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, right? Do not fall prey to the error of unprincipled men. And so pride, worldly desire, lack of proper spiritual investment. And I say this, there are groups that take great pride in appearance and race, ethnicity, and that is their draw. If you're upset about how you've been treated or about how your race has been treated, there are religious groups in Savannah that are very volatile and uh, they, they grow rapidly when they move to a new city because they find people who, just like the Galatian churches, what they're interested in is things of the flesh that appeal to these things, pride, worldly identity, worldly desire, people who aren't investing themselves in what is truly spiritual. So again, there's things all around us where if we're going to start cultivating a prideful attitude or unchecked worldly desires, if we're going to check out from being spiritually invested the way that Christ and the apostles taught, there's plenty of options for Satan to take our attention and we begin to be drawn away from the truth, right? False teaching always preys on pride, worldly desire, and a lack of proper spiritual investment. So the key to believing sound doctrine isn't that the facts are there. Remember Jesus and his ministry? Do you remember how when he would heal people, he wouldn't say, go on your way, I've healed you, be well. He said, go on your way, your faith has made you well. Because there were plenty of people who heard Jesus, weren't drawn to him. There were plenty of people who were sick and they never came to Jesus. And so what was it that connected the power of Jesus with a person's individual heart? Their faith, their willingness to go and be with Jesus because of their belief. The key to believing sound doctrine isn't that someone's really lucky and they have an amazing intellect where they've solved the doctrinal puzzles. You know, they've unlocked the secret door. It's just humility. It's just faith and having a genuine love that is really built by the kind of devotion, again, Jesus taught in his ministry. The kind of devotion that we've been reading about in Galatians. What the cross is, what it implies, that is the key thing to believing the truth, finding sound doctrine, abiding within it, seeing its purpose. And if we'll live by this rule, the rule of not taking pride in appearance or external things or even our works or anything like that, but learning what it means to boast in the cross and live by the rule that we are a new creation to be crucified to the world, both us to the world and the world to us, if we will walk by that rule, then unfathomable, unceasing grace, mercy, and peace will always eternally be provided. And by the way, everything we invest in is because we think that we will gain some measure of grace, mercy, and peace from it. Everything. Whether that be my work, my relationships, or my entertainment. What I do for leisure time. And it's fine, but you know, everything we do is because on some level we believe that I am getting a measure of grace, mercy, or peace from this. Therefore, this is worth my time. Therefore, this is worth my energy. And what Paul is saying is nothing is worth your time, your energy, your heart, like the cross and Jesus Christ as he was crucified. That is worth everything and you will gain everything you think you want. The reality is it is all found in him and nowhere else. And that's where we'll end. That's Galatians. Um, if you're here this morning...
and the message of God's word has convicted you in any way, we set aside a time at the end of our assembly to bring anything forward so that we can encourage each other, pray for each other, and restore one another's faith in relationship with God. If there's anything we can do for you this morning in that regard, bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.